If you are just getting started with the NGSS and 3D teaching, I want to invite you to check out Bring Wonder Back, an on-demand video series designed to help you understand why moving through the textbook and teaching topics is actually crushing your students' curiosity and what you can do instead. It's going to help you shift the work of learning where it belongs by building your understanding of explorations and discovery-based teaching practices. And finally, I'm going to help you take the first steps toward transforming your students into scientists through 3D learning, which is really what the NGS is all about. You can access this video series at iExploreScience/wonder and get ready to bring wonder engagement and a love for learning back to your science class. All right, to the show. Welcome to the Teaching Science in 3D podcast. My name is Nicole Van Tassel. And I'm Erin Sadler. And we are two science teachers dedicated to helping you cut through the confusion and meet the intent of the NGSS so you can master all three dimensions. The NGSS can seem totally overwhelming, but implementing these standards doesn't need to be. Hey everyone, it's Erin Sadler, and I'm here for another solo episode of the Teaching Science in 3D podcast. I've got a great topic today, and I will get to it in just a second, but first, I wanted to ask you a favor. Nicole and I would love it if you could take a second and rate and review the podcast. Your ratings and reviews make it easier for other teachers to find us, and that's really our goal here, to help as many teachers as we possibly can start implementing the NGSS in their classroom and doing it with as little pain as possible. We would also love it if you snapped a quick selfie when you're listening to the podcast, if you are walking the dog, doing your hair in the morning, going on your morning run, whatever it is that you're doing, we would love it if you tagged our Instagram account. Our Instagram account is at teaching science underscore in 3D, and we would love to see you guys there. And really, we just want to connect with you. If you want to follow us on our Instagram account for the podcast, or you can follow me at Sadler Science, and you can follow Nicole at iExplore Science, and we would love to hear from you. One of our favorite things is to hear from our listeners. So I'm going to warn you guys ahead of time, if you hear like jingle jangling in the background, um, it's my dog Daisy. It's a Friday night, a couple weeks before this airs, and my daughter is at basketball practice with my husband. And I don't know whose idea this was, but she has basketball practice every Friday night. And it's kind of like her and my husband's thing. And it's so wonderful to end a school week and have a little time with her and then get an hour and a half to myself. So whoever's idea that was, thank you so much. The only problem is it really irritates the dog when both of them are gone and I'm here. So she might be whining or walking around in the background. So I guess I should get to talking about our topic. So today I'm going to be spending some time talking about a topic that I got from a listener question. So the question was, how do I get my students to be more independent? And the person who sent me this question said that her students were expressing frustration and saying things like she wasn't helping them. I decided to focus on this question for today's episode because I hear some version of this question so often. And we, as NGSS teachers, understand the reasons for the shifts that we're making in our classroom. But to our students, it can feel like we're abandoning them. I mean, think about it from their perspective. In all likelihood, they've experienced one of two scenarios, unless they're coming from 
a background where they have really great NGSS experience in lower grade levels. In the first scenario, your students were exposed to non-NGSS style science. The teacher told them why things are the way they are, and they were supposed to remember them. And now, you are the teacher who has changed the rules. Or maybe your students have had little or no experience at all with science because it wasn't emphasized in other grade levels. So, to them, this is their first time doing quote-unquote real science, and they're pretty sure that they aren't getting it right because they just aren't good at it. And your student's background in science might be different, but this is kind of what I hear the most often. Either way, the kids can be really easily frustrated early on in your classroom. Or one of the other things that I've seen is that they'll try to work around it. Maybe one of the students will start to really understand the content, and then they'll try to help students figure it out by basically giving them the answer. Or students will copy answers from the student who figured it out because they're so afraid of being wrong. It is so important in NGSS classroom that you lead with your why. I start the school year by asking students if they've ever studied for a test, gotten a good grade, and then completely forgotten it the next day. I explain that it was likely forgotten because they hadn't done the work to figure out the information. It is also possible that it didn't apply to anything, so it wasn't meaningful to them. I also explain that in the beginning, I don't want them to help other students too much. My job in the classroom is to be the helper and their job is to be the figure outer. I tell them it's kind of like inviting their friend to the gym so that their friend can just watch them on the treadmill. The friend isn't getting anything out of it. This is also a really good conversation to have about letting kids copy in general, but I digress. Then I explain that this new way of teaching tries to make what they are learning more meaningful by connecting it to their lives. I tell them that while they're figuring out how the world works, I'm figuring out how to make it meaningful to them, and we're both going to have some missteps. And let me tell you, I give them a great speech, and I mean, I think it's great, but that doesn't mean that I don't have to explain this over and over again to them. Because when they are feeling like they aren't getting it fast enough, and they feel like I'm not helping, a speech I made three weeks ago isn't going to matter. So keep this speech in your back pocket and pull it out when the kids are starting to get frustrated. In addition to explaining why you're doing this, you have to provide some scaffolding. The general rule is if students are feeling too frustrated, add more scaffolding. You can always remove the scaffolding later when they don't need it anymore, but help them build a little bit of confidence in the beginning. So there's a bunch of different ways that you could scaffold in your classroom, but one of the things I like to think about first is time. So I think about the amount of time that I'm asking them to work independently. I usually start out with really simple, short tasks like think pair shares and move on from there. I have them work independently for increasing amounts of time as they're showing me that they're able to do it. And I know that you know this, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Having your students plan an investigation in the first couple of weeks is probably not going to go very well. You really have to build that capacity in your students. I'm also a really big fan of interactive notebooks. I think that they provide your students with a lot of independence if you can help them organize their notebook. One of the things that I've started to do is give my students some reference sheets that relate to the science and engineering practices or the cross-cutting concepts as they're introduced in my classroom. And we've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. Make sure that you're introducing those practices one at a time and not all at once in the beginning of your school year. And the same goes for the cross-cutting concepts. I'm pretty lax when it comes to the requirements for my interactive notebook. I don't require that students use color. 
I don't really care how they glue their pages in or anything like that. But the thing that I do care about is, is that their stuff is on the same page number as mine. And that seems like kind of a weird thing to get hung up on, but I like to give them the page number to refer back to later in the school year. So if students are using the science and engineering practice of modeling, I can have them turn to page 14 in their interactive notebook and review the reference sheet before we get started. Or I can have students refer to the cross-cutting concepts reference sheet for patterns on page 36 of their notebook. I think we might have to talk about interactive notebooks on another episode of the podcast because they're such a great tool. One of the tools I really like to use in my classroom is graphic organizers. And I have a different graphic organizer for each of the cross-cutting concepts. Each time that we make a connection to one of the cross-cutting concepts, we use the same graphic organizer over and over again. The first time that we use the graphic organizer, I spend a lot of time explaining how to do it. And the second time, I provide them with a little bit of help. And then the third time, they know how to fill it out themselves. After a while, I can even make this a little bit more open-ended by allowing students to choose which graphic organizer they would like to connect to, and therefore they're choosing their own cross-cutting concept that they want to make a connection to. A version of these reference sheets and graphic organizers is in my Teachers Pay Teachers store. I'll make sure to link to those in the show notes if you're interested. There are a lot of different scaffolds that you can use in your classroom to make things a little bit easier for your students and lower that frustration level. And we'll continue to talk about those scaffolds on the podcast, so just continue to tune in, and we'll give you more and more ideas for things that you can use in your classroom. And when the frustration levels are really high, I try to take a break and think about if I've really taught my students how to do what I'm asking them to do. I think one of the most powerful things that I do with my students is sit with them and talk to them and just be there for them when the frustration levels are really high. And this is really difficult to do in the beginning of the school year when they're just learning how to do everything and procedures aren't totally in place and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know about you, but for me, the first month of school is probably the hardest because I'm putting all of those things in place and all of those procedures and really teaching students how to do everything. But after a little while, I can really take some time and sit with students and kind of coach them through the things that they're struggling with. And when students are stuck on something and they're really having trouble figuring it out, I want them to know that I'm not walking away from them because I have something better to do. I'm totally willing to sit there and talk it through with them, but it's their job to figure it out. I already know the answer and me giving them the answer doesn't really help them at all. And I go back to that analogy. If they're watching me on a treadmill, that's great for me, but they're not getting anything out of it. And we talk about that over and over again. It's important to know that it just takes a lot of time. And if you're imagining that in my classroom, that two or three weeks in, students are doing these like incredible things on their own, that's not the way it works. I really have to build those relationships with my students first. And again, by scaffolding my expectations and what I'm asking them to do and really just giving them a little chunk at a time, I'm building that capacity in them. And unfortunately, I can't tell you how much time it's going to take because it's different with every class, every school, every period. It's always different. And I can tell you that in some instances, it has taken me until February (laughs) 
to get students to do what I need them to do and what I expect them to do in an NGSS aligned classroom. And that's really frustrating to say, but it doesn't always take that long. Um, I am going to go back to that fitness analogy. For some of us, if somebody asked us to run a marathon today, that would be absurd. Like that's just not going to happen. Um, but some people are more in shape than other people. And for some people, they could probably get ready for a marathon in a month or so. So, And some people, it would take six months. And for me to run a marathon, it would probably take like three years for me to train to be able to do a marathon because I am just not a runner. So you kind of have to think of the fitness level of your classes and assess where they are. And if they're really far behind, it's going to take longer in order to build that capacity in them. And that doesn't make any any less frustrating. In fact, I think that that makes it more frustrating because you probably weren't the person that um, helped build these kind of non-NGSS habits in them, but you are the person that's going to have to get them from point A to point B. There are so many other ways that you can also increase student independence and capacity in your classroom. One of the things that elementary school teachers do really well, and I just don't see it as often in the middle and high school levels, is creating student jobs. Student jobs do so many things for your classroom. They help students take ownership and responsibility. They can give your kid who just can't sit still a reason to be wandering around your classroom. I mean, paper passer, hello. And they help free you up to do more important things in your classroom. I mean, if your students are doing more, then you can really sit down to work with your students more often. I have students who are in charge of my warm-up every day from start to finish. I have students who are in charge of making sure that their Chromebooks get put away correctly. I have students in charge of setting up and putting away lab-style activities for me. I basically, anything that I can think of to make them do on their own, I have them do it. Which brings me to my next point. A well-organized classroom increases student capacity in so many ways. Just think about how much time you would save if students set up their labs all by themselves. This is another way that you could increase the opportunities for students to use the practice of planning and carrying out investigations. I personally love the idea of labels on all of your cabinets. I haven't personally done that in my classroom yet, but I'm working on it. Um, I have also in the past set up lab stations that have one set of all the equipment that students might need underneath them, maybe a couple extra things like a couple extra beakers and stuff like that. If you go this route, I think it's important that each piece of equipment has some kind of label on it that shows that it belongs to a given station or all of your beakers might end up at like station three or something. I also think that when we talk about student independence, we should be talking about teaching them how to collaborate with each other so that you're spending less time dealing with conflicts. Like, how often do you have to deal with students complaining that one student is doing too much or another student is doing too little when we're doing group work? But how have you taught them to properly distribute the workload? Some teachers deal with this by assigning student jobs, and I have to admit I'm not very good at it because I have trouble thinking of all the different jobs that they could do for the number of students who are in a group. I've tried a few different things, and one of my favorites is having students write in different color pens. That way they can visually see who is contributing more or less, and they know that I can see if they're contributing more or less, so they tend to distribute the workload a little bit better on their own. Students can also do this by sharing a Google Doc and, and typing in different colors. There are kids that will cheat to get around this, 
but it really takes more effort to cheat than it does to just make sure that everyone is doing their part. So I've used this strategy with creating models um, and I use like a big piece of poster paper or something like that and give each student a different color marker. I've done this with experimental design. I've done this with asking questions and creating a written argument. Pretty much anything that I've done where students are writing or drawing or doing anything like that, um, I find that this works really well. So I really could talk about the ways that you could increase student independence in your classroom for a long time, but I think I'm going to stop here. I think that there are two main takeaways for this episode. One, the rules have changed for your kiddos and it's best to show them a little grace in the transition. And two, make sure that you're showing them how to do the things that you want them to do and preferably before you're asking them to do it in a situation where it's kind of high risk. I'm going to link to a few related blog posts in the show notes and I would love to hear from you guys about how you increase student independence in your classroom. Send me a DM at Sadler Science on Instagram or at Teaching Science in underscore 3D. Again, we always love to hear from you, and I would love to hear how this works in your classroom. And just one more reminder, if you would write us a review, that would be so helpful. Thank you again for tuning in. Making sure that your lessons are three-dimensional isn't always easy. While you don't need to include all three dimensions every single day, you do want to make sure that each dimension is regularly addressed. I developed a really simple 3D planner to help keep me focused. It helps me track which pieces I'm using in my daily lesson plans. It only takes me five minutes to fill out, and it helps me notice patterns in my own lesson planning. For example, when I first started using it, I noticed I wasn't including the cross-cutting concepts as often as I thought I was. Just by recognizing this, I was able to focus on this one piece and improve my lessons. Right now, you can grab the same template that I use for my own planning for free. Go to sadlerscience.com slash 3dplanner to grab yours. That's sadlerscience.com slash 3dplanner.